Good morning, everyone. My name is Jenny. I'm the interim lead pastor here, and it is so good to have all of you. Uh, we've got a lot of people in church today, uh, not only because it's church and it's just that good, but um, also we have some baptisms happening this morning. So we have a lot of uh, visitors today, and we're really happy to have you all here. So good to have you. Today, we are jumping out of our normal gospel routine. We're going into 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll be honest with you. I, uh, the gospel text was about hell. And um, I think that's a great, important thing to talk about, but not on baptism day. So, so we decided to go to the epistle instead. So I'm really happy, I'm happy to be in this, uh, this moment in the, in the Bible, though. I think it has a lot to, sh- to say to us this morning. So um, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 11. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. But as for you, man of God, shun all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you were made. For which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all things, And of Christ Jesus, who made his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, it is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I said, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to uh, a man named Timothy, a young man named Timothy. And uh, normally if you see a a letter that's called 1 Timothy, you think maybe Timothy is the author, but rather this is to him. And um, what has happened is, is this letter has been written probably about 50 to 100 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And um, the church has been birthed. The Holy Spirit has come to us on, on Pentecost Sunday, Sunday, and then um, the church was kind of like sent out into the world. The apostles went and started these, these churches, and they met in homes. They're what we today would call like house churches. And um, these churches were just springing up everywhere. And this man named Paul was sort of the father of a lot of these churches, like the church planter. He would go to these certain regions and stay there for a couple of years and plant a church. And then he'd go to a new place and he'd plant another church. Uh, and so what has happened is that um, the church in Ephesus, if you remember the, the, the letter to the Ephesians, um, that's the, the letter to these people in Ephesus, they are still having a hard time. A lot of times, Paul would write letters to these churches um, when he would uh, want to give them encouragement, but would also hear about things that were going on in these churches that were not so great. And so he would write these letters to the churches. (laughs) Brady, (laughs) she's here for it. Um, He would write these letters to the churches to say, here is what is happening um, in the life of God and the life of the church, and here is the ways in which you're maybe not aligned with that. Uh, That's a nice way to put it for for some of the things Paul says. Um, But so what is happening in Ephesus is these false gospels are being preached. And what he's done is he has sent this young man named Timothy. He said, go to the church in Ephesus. Um, I need you to, like, help them set everything straight. 
So this letter on the whole is a lot of like really specific things on what a church needs to do, this church in particular, um, to thrive and to, to change some of the ways that they were doing things, to take care of people better, um, to, to, uh, to live more into the gospel of Jesus. And so, um, so there's kind of two things that are happening in this, in this text, um, or that's happening right before this text, actually. Um, this false gospel that's being proclaimed is a sort of gospel of self. Uh, these leaders who are in the church in Ephesus have taken their power that they have as church leaders and they have started to like turn it towards themselves, uh, which we don't do anymore, right? No one in the church does that? <clears throat> so that's what's happening. And um, Paul in this specific text, while most of the text is for the church and directions for the church, this specific moment is addressed to the young man, Timothy himself. And it's Paul basically saying like, hold on for dear life to the gospel that you know the gospel of Jesus in the midst of this culture, in this church that is teaching something else. So uh, we're going to look at what Paul is saying to Timothy in this as a personal address, not just to him, but to all of us here today. So he starts this text that we read. <clears throat> it begins by saying, so shun all this, um, which I love the lectionary, but it is hard when you jump into shun all this and you're like, shun what? That's an important verb, right? You got to know what, what you're shunning. So I've done the work for you, and I read the whole thing uh, that happens before this. So what's happening in this church um, is he's referring to, like, two forms of false teaching that are, happening, that are happening there. The first one is, this is a quote, teachers who have a morbid craving for controversy. Teachers who have a morbid craving for controversy. Leaders who just want to stir stuff up. And secondly, teachers that believe godliness is a means of gain. Leaders using their authority for selfish gain, for financial gain. So when Paul says, as for you, Timothy, shun all this, what he is saying is these two things. Shun divisiveness and selfish gain. Run from these things. I mean, shun is like such an intense word in the Greek. It's like run for your life. So the thing that I have found fascinating is that this issue, this power issue within the church, is particularly leadership within the church, has been a thing we have struggled with since the very beginning, since the very beginning of the church, that we were meant to take on the gospel of Jesus, this wonderful, beautiful thing, and, and give it out for the sake of the world, to live for the sake of the world, but rather what's happening since the very beginning is people take this power and they begin to use it for themselves. And Paul is saying that's a different gospel. That's a gospel of self. That's a gospel of you. It's not a gospel of Jesus. They have said, this is a great thing. Let me see how this thing can benefit me, basically, is what these leaders have done. Their attempts to gain power and control. So this is the whole, like, spoiler alert, the point of today's message, is that there is a stark difference between the gospel of Jesus and the gospel of self that since the very beginning of the church, people have sought to promote themselves from within. This doesn't happen in the church today, right? I think this is a timely word for us. As people in the church, uh, there has been sort of an awakening recently in the church of power abuses and what it looks like to be a leader who is leading for yourself, leading the church, and maybe even well-intentioned, but nonetheless, leading, leading for yourself. There have been so many books written recently 
conferences put on, conversations had about the church. Um, it's a long overdue conversation, but one that I don't think will be over anytime soon either. Um, we have books like A Church Called Tove by Scott McKnight, When Narcissism Comes to Church by Chuck DeGroat, Redeeming Power by Diane Langberg, and the Mars Hill podcast. Anybody? Pretty devastating listen, right? Power is all about control. It's all about taking the authority that you have and using it to control the things that are around you. And this is something that's in all of us. It's really innate in us. And it's actually, I think, to a certain extent, God-given. You are given a body and a soul and a life and a family and a world around you to steward. You are meant to, in a sense, take control to a certain extent over those things. And yet there is a point at which we have um, like lit a fire and the fire becomes out of control. And the thing I think Paul's trying to tell us here is that um, this isn't just a message for, for church leaders or people with power. This is a message to all of us because all of us are leaders in a sense, but also that all of us have these inclinations towards like gaining power for ourselves. And if we don't notice the small things, the little ways in which we begin to control our environment and take that power for ourselves, when we do come into places of authority, God help us all. Those things will start to kind of burn out of control. We've seen it over and over again in the church. The power becomes too much. The control has like spread too wide. And we see leaders fall from this all the time. I think one of the helpful things to, is, is to give an example of how this can look in our own lives. Um, and one of those things is gossip. Um, and I only say that because I've recently been reading this book called The Cost of Control by Sharon Hody Miller, who's a, a pastor. Um, and she wrote this wonderful book about control. And um, the way she describes certain actions that we do in, like, our everyday life as a means to sort of, like, grab control out of something is just incredible. So I wanted to offer this to you as an example, a way that we uh, try to gain power for ourselves. She says, most of us do not equate gossip with power, but very often that is exactly what it is about. Gossip is a weapon for those who feel powerless. We know we can't control our boss or that politician or even that friend, but we can control their reputation. And so with one whispered conversation veiled in the tone of concern, we light the match that burns their name to the ground. Which is intense and true. And it's made me start thinking about all the things I do in my life that are like very small ways to attempt to gain control. And our job, friends, is to notice those things and to like put them out to put out the fire that like could release into this uncontrollable thing for all of us. What are the small things we're doing to control the narrative, to control the resources, to control other people around us? You and I have to actually evaluate those things and ask the Lord to come in and help us and say, I don't want control of this anymore. I'm giving it back to you. And so Paul then, he says, shun these things. But then he says, and pursue these things. And he gives this wonderful list of virtues. And, um, and he's basically offering something instead of uh, the gospel of self. He says, run towards these virtues. Like, put these things before yourself. And this word pursue in the Greek is 
pursue aggressively, like a hunter going after a catch. Like that's how intense, um, and not just like you're sitting and waiting for a deer to come out, like not, not that kind of hunting, but like you're maybe after like a wild boar, <laughs> kind of like running towards something, maybe there's some wrestling involved, like that's the kind of pursuing that Paul is talking about here. Even more specifically, he's saying to lay hold of something showing personal initiative, a sort of focused resolve that matches the seizing of the thing that you're after. And this is important because the things we ought to lay hold of, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness, they don't come about by accident. Whereas control will, control comes out of us very naturally, none of these things come out of us naturally. We actually have to lean into the presence of God, the spirit of God, in order for these things to come about in us. They grow ultimately as fruit in our hearts and lives and communities because we chose them to, because we made changes in our lives to be intentional about them. We put energy toward them. We put resources towards them. We choose them again and again and again despite failing along the way. And he writes, says in his book, After You Believe, virtue, all these things are virtues, virtue is what happens when someone has made a thousand small choices requiring effort and concentration to do something which is good and right, but which doesn't come naturally. And then on the thousand and first time, when it really matters, they find that they do what's required automatically. Virtue is what happens when wise and courageous choices become second nature. I think Paul's telling us here is that the life of faith is not a life on cruise control. These things won't just happen to you. You have to Make intentional choices, um, certain, do certain disciplines, place yourself in a, in a space in life where you start to become the kind of person for whom these virtues naturally flow out of you. In Jamie Smith's book, You Are What You Love, he says, your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. This is because our action, our doing, bubbles up from our loves which, as we've observed, are habits we've acquired through the practices we are immersed in. That means the formation of my loves and desires can be happening under the hood of consciousness. I might be learning to love a telos that I'm not even aware of and that nonetheless governs my life in unconscious ways. The title of that book to me says it all. You are what you love. You are the things that you focus on. You are the things that you do every single day. So who are you? What do you love? What Paul's saying is that these people love themselves. And they're losing the gospel of Jesus in the midst of it. They have to change their direction altogether. And he's not even speaking to them at this point. He's speaking to Timothy and saying, you have to hold on to this in the midst of a place that will not hold on to it for you. You have to figure out what your life ought to look like so that you can become the kind of person who has the virtues of Jesus in the midst of a place that is only living for itself. And our job is not to be perfect. This is not to like, you know, every time like Paul lists, gives a list like this, there are some of us who are like, okay, how was I, was I righteous today? Was I gentle today? Was I loving today? Um, and that again makes it about us, Right? turns it towards us and what we can do and how good we're doing and self-evaluation and those kinds of things. And still, what Jesus wants to do in us is to shape the world around us so that those things flow out of us naturally, that they just become who we are. 
And all of this is very hard, friends. I have a friend who's been saying for the past two years, I'm too tired to grow into Christ-likeness, <laughs> which I think is funny. And also very true, a very vulnerable thing to say, very honest thing to say, which is why I think Paul says the next thing he says, this small little sentence which I think holds so much weight, which is, fight the good fight of the faith. And this may be a triggering phrase to some of us because I think this type of phrase, maybe even this phrase in particular, has been misused and abused in a lot of the Christian world for the exact thing Paul is telling us to shun. The gospel of the self, of self-protection, of self-promotion, um, self-freedom, we've used it as an excuse to kill and invade and colonize and use power against one another all in the name of Jesus. Fight the good fight of the faith does not mean if it means anyone dies in the scenario for you fighting for the faith, it means you, not someone else. There's no fighting for Jesus where we attack someone else. It's not about us. And I think that's what Paul is saying. If people who've led these sorts of movements knew Paul at all, they would have seen the heart of his statement. Paul himself was not uh, focused or concerned about himself or his own ego or his own power in any sense. He was concerned about Jesus and his gospel. If you go read the epistles, you will see over and over a man who is so humble, who actually says in his letters um, that he's not that great, which is kind of funny. Um, that he is, uh, he's not the, the best leader in the world. Not only that, but he's the worst of all sinners, he calls himself. And this is in an age where uh, honor culture existed. No teacher would go before people and say, I'm not doing great. No leader would. It would be, they would be like thrown out into the street or I'm not great. Um, they were supposed to be perfect examples of the thing that they were teaching. Paul in uh, Romans says his famous phrase, you know, that it's ingrained in him to do the things he shouldn't do and to not do the things that he should. He puts his own inner conflict on display, not just for the Roman church, but arguably for all of us in, in what might be his most famous letter. The gospel of Jesus, as Tim Keller puts it, the gospel of humility, those things are the, the same, um, informed everything Paul said and did. And it was baffling to the early church. I think more baffling than it is today. Because we now hold humility as a virtue. If we meet someone who's humble, we think that's really nice. We don't live it out, really, in our lives. We want to be like the best version of ourselves and the center of attention and be the best of all things, right? We think it's great, though, when someone is humble. But that was not the way it was in, in Paul's, Paul's culture. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers and sisters... I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God to you with superior speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were made not with pervasive, persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might, not, might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. This is Paul openly admitting if there was any power in the gospel that these people heard, it was not because of him. He was like, I don't even know that much, 
And whatever I say, I'm not saying that well. And I'm really afraid. There are other places in the Bible where it's documented that Paul was not a good teacher. And yet there was something in him. The spirit in him was so powerful because he didn't need it to be about him. It didn't have to be about Paul in order for this thing to like live and exist in the world today. You and I are here because of this man. A bad teacher. How strange. I heard this weekend about um, a church that was in, it's in California. It was a church building. So it was, didn't belong to a church. But someone owned it. May not have been a church building, just a building. But someone owned it and wanted to donate it to a church that needed a building, which is great. I think I guess it's as, I guess real estate in California is as hard to find as it is here, because we may be in the storefront for the rest of our lives until Jesus comes back. Um, but so they want to give this building away. How nice! Um, they decided to have a preaching contest <laughs> to give this church building away, um, which I said too many things about, embarrassingly, at the table where I was sitting at, about how I hated every part of that. Um, it's the opposite of what it should be. Like, it was, what about the pastor's heart? What about what the church is doing for the community? Though, like, how do we measure those things? Those are the things that ought to be looked into to offer something like this, not just the most compelling speaker, a lot of times those people are the people with, like, great power and control. They've, like, wooed us all with their words, you know. What Paul is saying is that he is not important. Even sometimes the content of what he's saying is not important, but that he is saying it because of who Jesus is and what he has done for him, because of the testimony of how Jesus has changed his life. That's why his words are powerful. So I've been listening to this song recently. Um, it's not a Christian song, but it's called My Ego Dies at the End, which isn't that a great song title? <laughs> um, very moody. Uh, in the chorus, the woman sings, my ego dies at the end, it's ego or death. And um, I just have been listening to it on repeat because I'm like, that is the struggle. That's like what it means to be a Christian. Is like, it's either going to be me or it's going to be my own death. It's going to be Jesus or it's going to be my death. Like those, that's just what it is. I have to lay myself down in order for this thing to do what it's meant to do. In order to be the person that God is calling me to be. It's ego or death. I think that's one of the essential, we're about to baptize some folks. And I've been thinking about baptism a lot this week. And it's one of the essential things that baptism symbolizes. Is that the thing I'm bringing into the waters with me dies. And something new comes out of those waters. A new creation. A new version of myself. That like ego dies in these waters. And something else resurrects from them. I'm about to put up one of my most favorite slides maybe I've ever put up in church. Um, anybody know who that is? <laughs> who is it? Benjamin Linus. I think the greatest fictional character of all time. So this is from the show Lost. Anyone seen Lost? Let me see. Okay. If you haven't, you can just go home now and just start it. I think it's that important. I think it's the greatest show ever created. Well, it's tied with another one, which I'll tell you later. But um, I think Lost is wonderful. And, uh, and I have been, like, captivated by it for, for so many years. 
And, um, and this character is so complex and complicated and so um, wonderful. And uh, so this character himself, he, is, um, he grew up on this very strange and mysterious island, which was unique there. I don't think many people did grow up on the island. And, um, and so he grows up into this person and is like given leadership over the island to protect it, to take care of it, to do what needs to be done in order to make sure the island is, is taken care of. And along the way, he is supposed to kind of receive word of, of direction, of wisdom from this sort of like spiritual person, like the Jesus figure of the island whose name is Jacob. And we keep hearing about Jacob all through the show, and you don't see him till like the very last seasons of the show. But you hear the name Jacob, and it's just this big deal. But Benjamin never hears from Jacob. He pretends that he does. Um, and he spends this whole time that he's like over the island, like wondering, when am I going to hear from Jacob? So eventually, Benjamin starts to do these insane things, um, these terrible sacrifices for his family and his own life, and um, lots of people die and things like that. So he's, um, he's made these choices on behalf of the island, and it's not going great. And then he finally gets the opportunity to meet Jacob. If this were a different church, I would be showing you that scene right now. But <laughs> we don't do that. Um, Maybe we will. Um, so he finally meets Jacob in this cave. And Benjamin tells him, like, all the things that he has done for this island, all the things he's lost. And he looks at, ben, or he looks at Jacob and he says, what about me? And Jacob looks at him with, like, all the love in the world, like tears in his eyes. And he says, what about you? And I remember watching this scene as a, I think I was a senior in high school, and just being devastated by it. Because I already, I knew that I identified with Benjamin's character so much. And to like witness this scene between like this, this human figure and this Jesus-like figure, and for that to be the interaction that happens, was devastating to me. Um, not only because it was just really good, but it was really true in my own life that what I brought before Jesus all the time was that question, what about me? When will I get what I want from all the things that I've sacrificed for you, from the life that I've lived for you? When will I start to receive? When will it be about me finally? And so when Jacob said, what about you? And really, go watch this. They'll find it on YouTube. It's so good. He really looks at him like the, the gentleness of a father looks into his eyes and says, what about you? Because it's not about us. It's about Christ and him crucified. It's not about someone else. It's about Christ and him crucified. Thanks be to God. It's about Jesus and what he has done and who he is. And that is what washes over us in our baptism. It's Jesus. We get clothed with Christ, hidden with Christ. He is so much better than us. So much better than our ego. He is so much better than a life lived for ourselves. I think it's not about you is a really good baptism message. And while I won't say that over these children, I'll be thinking it. <laughs> I would say it over my own child in baptism. Like, this is not about you. Thanks be to God. Thank God this is about Jesus and not about us. Because that's where the real freedom lies. 
It doesn't live inside of you. It's not some place where, like, if you just dig down deep enough and figure out your identity, then your freedom will be there. It's also not able to be given to you by someone else, nor can it be taken away from, by someone else. It lives in who Jesus is, in hiding ourselves in him. At the very end of this passage, Paul reminds us that Jesus himself stood before Pontius Pilate and confessed him as Lord and was sent to die, egoless, for our sake. It's like Paul is telling him, you know, shun all these things, run towards these things, fight the good fight of the faith, and then he's like, and now I'm just going to sing about Jesus for a few lines because <laughs> he's just so overcome with who Jesus is and how Jesus is the answer to all of these things that we're looking for. So I'm just read again, read it again. Um, this, this, this is why we fight the good fight. He says, in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So I'll just say this to conclude. All of this is not to say that you aren't incredibly important. You are. Because you can't even be baptized means that God has made you into something that really, really matters. You were created in the image of God. You were bought at a price. You were adopted into the family of God and are an inheritor of his blessings. That means you really matter. But when we make it about us, we lose the plot of why it is that we started this thing in the first place. We lose the plot of Jesus' gospel, the gospel of humility, the gospel that he came to bring to earth. I think it, Paul himself says it perfectly in, um, what is it, Colossians 3. What I've been trying to say for 25 minutes, he says in like three lines, so I'm just going to read it to you. It's really good, though. This is really good news for you and me. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above and not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good news.